Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati, in this week for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're joined by a woman who advocates for hundreds of thousands of California school teachers at the state capitol. That's right, Terry Holloman is the Associate Executive Director of Governmental Relations at the California Teachers Association. That's a real fancy way of saying she's the point person on policy for one of the state's most powerful groups, the Teachers Union. And with kids around the state returning to school this month, we'll talk about what's ahead for students and teachers and what lessons we can learn from the very rocky past year and a half. But first, there was a debate. There was a recall debate. We had a debate. We had a debate. And at least four people were watching, you and me and the two other people I talked to earlier today about the debate. Yeah, and we can add on maybe some friends and family for the four uh, Republican contenders who appeared on stage uh, in your Belinda. Former San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner, John Cox, businessman who lost the, the 2018 election, along with Assemblyman Kevin Kiley and former Congressman Doug Osi. Um, and Maurice, I have to say, you know, the, the focus on this, clearly this was just a fraction of the 46 candidates who, who will appear as potential replacements uh, for the governor on the recall ballot election September 14th. Um, but we really heard last night a, a case by all of them on the first question of the recall, why they believe Gavin Newsom should be removed from office, but not much on the second question as to why they should be the person to potentially become governor. There wasn't a lot of, you know, confrontation between these Republicans. No, isn't that Ronald Reagan's first uh, rule of Republican right, politics? They followed that. Thou yep. shall not speak. I mean, it was. And I think that... Um, I mean, it's funny. You're right. And this certainly was a play to the base on many issues from how they want to tackle homelessness to attacking the state sanctuary city. There was even some questions about critical race theory and the border wall, things that go beyond in some cases, Chinese, you know, policy towards China, very well beyond what actually a governor would be dealing with. But I mean, you might disagree with me here. guy. I actually thought it was less of an extreme sort of conversation than you might have expected given the dynamics around this recall. I mean, this was not a Trump debate, right? I think a lot of these folks, I mean, Kevin Faulkner practically tripped over himself trying not to talk about Donald Trump. Um, 
And except for on some of those specific issues that were brought up by moderators, it, it was pretty, I, I don't know, it felt very sort of run-of-the-mill Republican politics to me. Right, it did. And, and at one point, even the moderator, Alex Michelson, said, reminder, this is not a Republican primary debate. I think you saw a strategy by all the candidates to really focus on winning over the conservative voters they are sure are going to turn out for this election, but really not a whole ton of focus on reaching across to any potentially disaffected Democrats who they might want to win over. That was definitely uh, the strategy. I know, Marisa, though, you felt like former Congressman Doug Osi was a standout. I think, Loki, he might have had three of the four, like, you know, highlight moments from that debate. I will say Kevin Faulkner kind of had a differentiating moment when he made a really direct plea for residents to get vaccinated. None of the other candidates did that. But Osi, I mean, he was probably more on the offensive than the other candidates last night. Yeah, he kind of came out swinging um, a very sort of impassioned uh, argument about the failure of tackling homelessness. Although, you know, this is a political show. We talk about insider stuff. So I got to give the shout out to what I thought was the line of the night where O.C. called out Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, liberal labor friendly Dem from San Diego, who chairs the powerful Appropriations Committee. He said straight up she's the most powerful Democrat in Sacramento and I would call her up. And it was, you know, it was interesting seeing like the difference between how he and Assemblyman Kevin Kiley, who have been on the inside of government, talked about some of these issues compared to, say, um, you know, somebody uh like why am i blanking i think it I was remember who you are. <laughs> even it, it was an acknowledgement frankly that they all know if even if they were to become governor in a recall election they would be faced with the super majority of democrats in the senate in the assembly and they'd have to find some way you know to work with the legislature as it is and so right i thought you know oc calling lorena gonzalez out by name was interesting um he also had maybe the one-liner of the night when he kind of demanded that employees at the EDD start picking up the phones. Um, And then, you know, he did go kind of on the attack more than the other candidates. He criticized Kevin Faulkner's homelessness uh, record. And he said as a farmer, as a rice farmer, he had the more hands-on experience with water policy as opposed uh, to the three other candidates. We should mention, though, the leader in early polling among replacement candidates Larry Elder, conservative talk radio show host, was not at the debate. He chose to uh, participate in a fundraiser in the Central Valley instead. Right. And this is something I think Newsom's team has really started to seize on Larry Elder. He is, you know, a more controversial figure in some ways because of his more libertarian views, uh, advocates for a zero dollar minimum wage, for example. Although, you know, it's funny. I said, oh, they weren't as extreme as maybe I expected. But then we did have these bizarre moments, too, in the debate where you had Kevin Faulkner, who was seen as, I think, a more moderate Republican, not saying he would bar local governments from uh, mask mandates, but not saying he wouldn't. You know, I think they're all trying, you know, John Cox went on record after saying, well, there's a place for the minimum wage. No, I actually agree with Larry Elder, zero dollar minimum wage. Newsom's people are jumping on all of this to really try to drive home the idea, you know, that they think that this is a far right effort, a Trumpian effort to oust a Democrat. Um, and I think that, you know, that could have some potency. I mean, to your earlier point, though, Independent voters, no party preference, are some quarter of the electorate. And recent polls have shown they are a little bit more open or a lot more open, really, than Democrats to this message. So you do have to wonder if these folks are really just hoping that any sort of ink they can get on this recall is just going to convince people to vote yes on the first question and then, you know, whatever the free for all on the second one. 
right. <laughs> however that goes. But I mean, to your point about the Newsom campaign, how are they looking at what happened in the debate last night in this campaign going forward? Obviously, they've their focus throughout this whole process has been trying to label the recall as a partisan Republican effort. I actually think that gets a lot more potency when they can focus it on one alternative candidate. And in this, in the last couple of days, we as polls have come out showing Larry Elder ahead of the field, they've really used that as an opportunity to try to create like a matchup almost like this is either Newsom or Elder and kind of contrast those two positions. I think it takes on a lot more, uh, you know, I think it, it works a lot more as an argument when you have that one specific foil. And it'll be interesting to see how they play off of Elder uh, going forward. We should just say uh, something to watch for in the recall race this weekend is a meeting of Republican GOP uh, state party officials potentially endorsing a candidate on Saturday. It's a pretty high threshold. I think it would be, have to be 60 percent of delegates. Um, but that you know, could potentially make a difference. There was a report this week from uh, the Public Policy Institute of California that said it could maybe add three to four points uh, to whoever candidate might get that party endorsement, which doesn't sound like a lot. But look, with all those candidates on the ballot, it might make a difference. Right. I mean, if the if the first question gets a majority, then uh, the second question, it, you don't need that much to win. Right. Um, well, this is something that CTA and other labor unions are weighing in on. So we will talk to Terry Holloman in a second about that. We're going to take a short break. And we come back, we will be joined by Terry. She is with the California Teachers Association. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast 2 at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here today with guest host Guy Marzarati. Scott Schaefer will be back next week. And today on The Breakdown, we are thrilled to have Terry Holloman. She's Associate Executive Director of Governmental Relations at the California Teachers Association. You might have heard of them before. Welcome, Terry. Hey, We're so Terry. happy to have you. Hey, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here, I think. Yeah, she's a little nervous, but that's okay because we're here to make you feel comfortable. No, <laughs> um, and ask a couple of tough questions, but both. Yeah. So Terry, let's just start with you and how you kind of got to this. You grew up in Los Angeles. I know um, you came to Sacramento like a decade ago or so, but where did you grow up in LA and what was your childhood like? Was your family political? 
Sure. Well, again, thank you for having me. Um, I joke, but I am much more comfortable historically um, being in the background, operating the shadows <laughs> is probably the way we would say it in, in, um, in my world. Um, but I grew up in Los Angeles, uh, west side of Los Angeles, Playa del Rey to be specific. Uh, my mother was a school teacher, uh, a principal, and then uh, later before she passed away was the uh, director of Title I and specially funded programs for LAUSD. Uh, my grandmother was also a teacher and my dad uh, started as a 19 year old, uh, they called them custodians then, but janitor um, for LAUSD. And he went to school at night and uh, got his bachelor's degree. And when he retired 37 years later was the CFO for LA Unified School District. So I grew up with um, education and education politics um, being discussed at the dinner table. And I knew that in my heart of hearts, I didn't have the constitution to become a teacher um, because that's really, really tough work. Yeah. Um, I also have a biological father who's also passed away uh, that I was not raised with, um, but he was an assembly member uh, in the early seventies, a one-term assembly member. He was a charismatic, but flawed man. And he <laughs> ran, um, ran uh, against uh, Nate Holden for Senate after he was in the assembly for one term and he lost and uh, later opened a restaurant called the Boulevard Cafe that um, uh, people in Los Angeles used to media in particular, whenever anything happened in the black community, they would go to that restaurant to learn about the OJ verdict and kind of get yeah. a, sing a finger on the pulse. Oh, so this is in your blood, right. a lot of this. But, but how does that, so you have the education, you have the politics, but where, when was your first kind of entrance into politics? So I'm going to answer in a longer way than you're going to have to do the gong on me. Um, <laughs> I uh, grew up with parents, my mom and my dad, Henry, who um, really underscored for me the importance of civic engagement. Uh, whatever I chose to do, whether it was at one point thinking about wanting to go to law school and then having friends who actually went to law school and saying, yeah, no, that's not for me. Um, my parents said to me, it's important that you give back. And I watched my dad, who uh, my mom has passed away, but my dad, who retired from LAUSD, uh, later decided that he wanted to run for the CalPERS board because he had experience in finance and had this really amazing story of going, what we used to say, from the broom room to the boardroom, being a janitor, but then being someone who was um, on corporate boards. And so it's in um, our family's DNA. I had an opportunity when I was very young to uh, do an internship at Warner Brothers that became um, a brief job where I was a public affairs representative and my mentor there said to me, if you really wanna understand public affairs, you need to work for an elected official. And so she facilitated an um, interview with uh, then assembly member, Kevin Murray. Um, I served as a field rep for him for three years. Um, didn't love that work, um, but had my first opportunity to work on a campaign. And so I think there are three elected officials who are probably the most consequential in my career. Um, he was the first, um, and you know, the first is always someone you remember. Um, so he was the first, uh, first campaign, and really where I reconnected with uh, the man who became my future husband, Andrew. And uh, the second was Mark Ridley Thomas. Um, and what I appreciated most about Mark Ridley Thomas, I had done some work for the Democratic Party uh, in their coordinated campaign. And at that time, uh, he was Assemblymember Ridley Thomas. He founded, along with some other uh, Black leaders in Los Angeles, the African American Voter Registration Project, Voter Registration and Education Project. And he felt that it was vitally important that um, young women and women of color, in particular Black women, had an Ooh. opportunity um, to be exposed to campaigns and politics. And so he took an interest in me and said, I think this is something you can do. And for 
um, almost a decade. I served as a consultant to him both on that project and um, on campaigns. And um, I did a lot of cross-training. And so because of him, I learned how to fundraise. I learned field campaigning. Um, and I learned how to do constituency and, and um, you know, kind of grassroots organizing. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue to something we wanted to talk to you about, which is what it's been like being a black woman in this arena. I mean, you kind of hit on it, but you've worked for campaigns, you've worked for candidates, you've worked for ballot measures, you're now, um, you know, in the union sphere and, and more policy and lobbying. But there was just a letter actually published this week demanding equal pay for better work, uh, talking about how many elected officials, especially Democrats, may push businesses to hire women and people of color, but don't necessarily adhere to their own advice when it comes to their campaigns, right? That you see a lot of, honestly, white male consultants raking in the dough there. What's your experience been like? What challenges have you had um, understanding that you did have some really good mentors? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And I, again, refer back to that experience with, um, you know, as assembly member, then senator, then supervisor, Ridley Thomas. And so it really spanned a decade of work and um, always increasing opportunities, always increasingly encouraging of me. Um, were there white male consultants that were part of his sphere? Absolutely. Um, and they were great. They also encouraged me and mentored me. Um, when I worked for Holly Mitchell, both doing campaign work and um, consulting for her when she was the chair of the California Legislative Black Caucus, um, she too ensured that uh, Black women and women were at the forefront of her operation. Again, did she have white male consultants? Absolutely. But did she create a space for women and Black women in particular? Absolutely. And so I've read the Medium post, the article that was released, um, and I understand, look, I can relate to a lot of what was expressed there um, still to this day. Um, in my mind, I'm, you know, 32, 33, um, but not so much uh, according to my driver's <laughs> license. And so, and so, you know, throughout the course of my career, have I had those experiences and do I still have them today? Absolutely. Oftentimes I am the only black woman in a room, um, sometimes the only woman, but more often the only black woman in the room. Um, and so do we need, does representation matter? Definitely matters. And do we need to create a space and create opportunities, not just for black women, definitely for black women, but not just for black women, for other people of color, people who come from marginalized or underrepresented communities, we absolutely have to do that. Um, if we want to have the society that we claim we want to have, particularly in California, it needs to reflect the state. And so um, I, I empathize, I also know though, that I have been the beneficiary of having um, people like Gail Kaufman, who has been a long time, as you all know, veteran strategist and consultant, um, who I worked with in 2014 on Prop 46. Um, it was she and my predecessor uh, who first approached me about coming to CTA. And so um, I do think it's important to build relationships, um, not only within your community, but across different communities, because you never know um, when opportunities are going to come up and when someone is going to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, I think this is something you can do. For me, making that transition from consulting, which is what I did for the better part of a decade and working with a wide variety of candidates and ballot initiatives um, and kind of special projects to have a smiley um, and some other folks. Uh, for me, what was most important when this opportunity came up was to Think about what it meant to have a black woman in, in a role like this in, in California in labor. Uh, and there are very few. There are some really prominent uh, black and Latino women who are running some of the largest labor organizations in the state of California. Um, again, many of us pretend, uh, pretend 
um, that we are in the shadows and sometimes you can't stay in the shadows. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a lot going on in California um, in terms of women that are leading. So you said you've, you know, you've done work on campaigns, kind of contract lobbying. Tell us a little bit about what the work that you do now is uh, with the California Teachers Association. We often ask the dinner party question. If you're at a dinner party, I guess not in the Sacramento capital uh, area. <laughs> How do you describe the work that you're doing on a day to day basis? Sure. So I should say um, I don't I've never done contract lobbying. That's actually okay. What I have. He's a partner in a lobbying firm, and uh, we leave that side of the business to him. Um, he's brilliant and very good at what he does. Um, and uh, so what I do is uh, I'd like to tell people that I'm Olivia Pope. That would be like a great thing for me to say at a dinner party. It's a little bit more like being a political firefighter is how I you know, would probably most appropriately describe it. Um, our role in government relations is really to translate the organization's vision and priorities to the legislature, to the Department of Education, to the Department of Finance, to the governor's administration. Um, and I think it's probably helpful to understand, um, for listeners to understand a little bit about how CTA is structured. Mm -hmm. um, we have a 23 member board that is um, reflective of the entire state of California. So they represent every facet of the state of California. We also have a roughly 700 member um, state council on education. Those are elected leaders, um, educators, education support professionals from throughout the state. Um, those folks actually determine the policy priorities that CTA has. So uh, what that means is that four times a year and sometimes in the interim, they get together and they actually make decisions on candidates, on initiatives, and on the legislative priorities that the organization has. They have standing committees and they discuss and debate. And we then are charged with implementing the vision of state council. And so there's always this mythology that, you know, everything happens in smoke-filled rooms in Sacramento and, you know, backroom deals are being cut by CTA. And the reality is that our job in governmental relations, governmental affairs, is um, for my team, uh, which consists of a woman named Lori Easterling, who manages the Legislative Affairs Department, Michael Borges, who manages the Political Action Department, to really make sure that we're implementing the vision of our 310,000 educators um, throughout the state. 310,000. That is a lot of people. If you live in California, you know that California kind of represents everything. Like we're known as a blue state, but you have rural areas, purple areas, suburban, extra, I mean, we got it all, right? And you know the reputation too of CTA, that you guys are like the boogeyman and, and you know, over this past year, this idea of like the teachers union not wanting kids to go back to school, these, you know, that I, I wanna talk about COVID a little and what we're looking at, but like, what do you make of just that reputation? As somebody who's worked in and around politics and is now in-house for CTA, is any of it true? And like, how powerful are y'all? Um, well, my mom always told me you have to leave a little bit of mystery. So I don't know that I should answer that question. <laughs> um, look, we're powerful because of the work that our members do. Our members are teachers throughout the state of California, K-12, K-14 teachers throughout the state of California. They're also education support professionals. There's 6 million plus kids that go to public schools in California. Um, they touch the lives of, on a daily basis when schools are in session, more than 20 million Californians. I and mean, when you think about it, whether it's a child from a two-parent household or a multi-generational household, they come in contact with 6 million children and, and ultimately impact 20 million lives. And so is that significant? Is that powerful? Absolutely. 
um, the work that they do, the charge that our members have, it is an incredibly um, daunting responsibility to represent our membership. Um, and it's, a, it's an incredible privilege to represent our members. Um, everyone, when they're running for office, says that they love teachers and that they love kids. Um, for us, my job is really to hold them accountable for what they say they're going to do before they get elected. And do we have the strength and do, um, does our team have at our backs 310,000 members who are absolutely prepared to um, vote, who are prepared to fight, um, who are prepared to stand up for themselves, but also for students, absolutely. And so um, it, you know, it's, it's a wonderful organization for which to work, um, but it is, um, it's humbling. Um, and how powerful are we? That's not for me to say, that's for um, other people to say. Uh, but I do think our work and our reputation speaks for itself. And I'm sure a big part of the work that you've uh, been doing over the last year is around negotiations over uh, bringing kids back into the classroom. Um, the school year ended last year. California was still near the bottom in rankings in the U.S. in terms of return to classroom learning. Looking back on that process, both negotiations at the state level and local district level, are you satisfied with how things ended up? I don't think anyone could be satisfied in the middle of a pandemic um, when you had parents who rightfully and understandably were scared and frustrated um, for the future of their children, what was happening in the moment, but also for the future of their children. And what we would say, what I would say to people when we were having conversations with legislators, with the administration, is that this was a rare situation in politics where no one was wrong. Parents were not wrong for saying that they were worried about their child's, not just education, but social and emotional needs and wanting answers. Um, our members were not wrong for wanting classrooms and school sites to be as safe as possible in the middle of an unprecedented pandemic where it was literally a matter of life and death, not hyperbolic matter of life and death, but literally a matter of life and death. And when you think about California schools, you have so many schools that have had decades of disinvestment. So our principal priority in all of this was the safety of not just our members, but of students and their families. And so for the duration, the better part of the past year and a half, our focus has always been on safety. It's been making sure that each school site had multi-layered protection strategies. So masks, um, physical distancing, ventilation, again, decades of disinvestment in public education and in facilities in particular, not having proper ventilation. And then ultimately when vaccines came on the horizon, vaccines being um, a really important element of how we control this virus. Wanting schools, our members never, never didn't want schools to be open. They wanted schools to be open safely. And so there, I think, was a misperception that we were fighting to keep schools closed when the reality was we were fighting to have them open safely. And one of the biggest um, challenges is that there is a disparity throughout the state in terms of schools that are in urban areas, Schools are in high communities of spread. So if you think about places like East Oakland or Compton or East Los Angeles, where many of those parents were essential workers, many of those students lived in multi-generational households, many of those communities had high rates of spread. And so we felt that it was our charge to not just advocate um, for our members and making sure that our members were safe, but those students who were most vulnerable, making sure that they were safe in their classrooms. 
All right. Well, we only have a few minutes left, unfortunately. But I do want to ask about what's ahead. I mean, we're seeing a lot of talk now about vaccine mandates. Um, you know, schools are reopening. Where does CTA stand on the question of whether teachers should have to get vaccinated? And just do you have confidence that as we open schools that they're going to stay open this year? Look, you know, if you think about just kind of what I said, that our focus has always been about safety. We were very early on when vaccines even became a possibility or looked like they were on the horizon became a possibility. We said that we felt that that was important, not just for our members, but for all school employees and then students and their families, students who are eligible to receive vaccines and their families to be vaccinated. Because when we're talking about a pandemic that has changed, I mean, you know, people talk about CDC guidance and we've all dealt with the impacts of changing guidance. Um, the Delta variant that's now, um, that's now you know, taking, taking more lives. Um, there, the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with a study or a report yesterday or the day before that said 71,000 adolescents um, have now gotten the Delta variant of COVID. And that's five times higher than it was in June. And so for us, vaccines have always been tremendously important. It's a priority in order to get schools reopened. And so we have um, supported and encouraged our members to be vaccinated. We started that work early on and uh, we support anyone who is eligible to get. But would you mandate it? Would you guys fight against that? It's, you know, for us, it's one of those things where, again, our members are vaccinated at higher rates. Uh, we, in some cases, believe that it's around 90% based on the polling and the surveying of our members that we've done. And so I don't know that it needs to be mandated. Mm -hmm. I think that our members are responsible. They want to be back in schools, in their classrooms. I think, obviously, there are some people who have underlying conditions um, and are medically fragile for whom vaccines are not a potential or a reality. Um, but for us, our members are anxious to get back to schools. Um, they do believe that it can happen safely, but safely includes vaccines, it includes masking, and then it also includes all of those other multi-layered protection strategies that we've heard so much about. So masking and PPE, um, this is not the time to take our foot off of the safety pedal, um, because if we want kids to be back in school, those are the things we need to do. All right. Well, fingers crossed for everyone's sake. We stay back in school. Terry Holloman at the CTA. You, we really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Thank Terry. you so much. Thank you. That was fun. It was fun. You, you have to say that now. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm supposed to say it's fun now? Uh -huh. <laughs> That's it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tobin Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Otis Taylor Jr., and Erica Aguilar. I'm Guy Marzarati. Remember, the last day to vote in the recall election is September 14th. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. You can find Guy at Guy Marzarati. Have a good summer. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from Throughline. 
If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.